sent its first piercing blast blown by a heavenly being on Mount Sinai. For over a thousand years, the Hebrew people in Old Testament times heard the call of the shofar. Every Friday night to the welcoming of the Sabbath, every new moon festival, and especially on the annual feasts, climaxing in the high holy days of the seventh month. Those of you who have been following the Hebrew calendar know that this last Thursday was Yom Kippur, the most holy day in the Hebrew calendar, Day of Atonement, or literally Day of Ultimate Atonements, Yom HaKippurim, the Day of Ultimate Atonement. We as Seventh-day Adventists believe that since 1844, we have been living in the antitypical Day of Atonement. Glad to hear an amen for that. Is it good news to you that we're living in the Day of Atonement? Ted, did you hear all those amens? And I heard, got one from you too, even for the amens. Yes. I wish that the Day of Atonement had always been good news for me. But somehow growing up as an Adventist, and I'm a fourth generation Adventist, it's in my genes and chromosomes, the judgment message was not good news. I shuddered when I heard sermons about the judgment, fearing that I would not be ready when my name would come up. And so when I heard preachers preach about the judgment, I said, Lord, please don't let my name come up today. You know that I'm not ready for the judgment. Maybe later I'll be good enough. And so through academy and high school and college, academy and college and seminary, it was the same story. The judgment was not good news. I dreaded the judgment. And as a young pastor, I did not preach about the judgment. It wasn't part of the good news for me. Well, one, uh, one day in Flagstaff, Arizona, my first pastorate up there in the, in the high country, they called the pastor of Arizona, Flagstaff, the king of the north because we had the whole northern section including the Navajo Indian Reservation and so forth. And so as the king of the north, I was preaching different series of sermons as, and as the Lord impressed me and came across a book by C.S. Lewis called uh, Reflections on the Psalms. Great book on the Psalms. And so I decided that could be the, the basis of a study session for prayer meeting, Wednesday night prayer meeting. So we began to go through the different themes of the Psalms. And there was a chapter on judgment in the Psalms. But I skipped over that one, as you might expect. I didn't want to preach or study about judgment. That was not part of the good news even though the first angel's message says everlasting gospel to preach to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And what's the first angel? Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. I didn't want to preach about the judgment. But then I decided, okay, the last week, let's just go and go through that chapter. And I began to study the verses about the judgment in the Psalms. And amazingly, 
I was shocked by what I found about David's attitude toward the judgment. David longed for the judgment. Notice, for example, Psalm 96, verses 11 to 13. Psalm 96, 11 to 13. Let the heavens rejoice and let the and all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. What's all this joy about? It goes on to say in the next verse, for he is coming, he is coming to judge the earth. David saw the time of judgment as a time of excitement, as a time of joy. In uh, Psalm 82 and verse 8, I discovered another shocking verse. Psalm 82, in verse 8, David prays, Arise, O God, judge the earth. Do you hear this? David is actually pleading for God to come in judgment. Well, those were hard enough for me to swallow, but when he started getting personal, it was more than I could take. Psalm 7, for example, in verse 8, Psalm 7 and verse 8, The Lord shall judge the earth, the peoples. And then this line, Judge me, O Lord, judge me. Wow. David, as if to say, is praying, Lord, bring it on. I can hardly wait. Let the judgment come. And if he would just pray it once, I could say, well, maybe it was a slip of his inspired tongue. But four times in the Psalms, you have this same phrase. Judge me, O God. Judge me. Psalm 26 and verse 1. Psalm 35, verse 24. Psalm 43, verse 1. They all say the same thing. Judge me, O Lord. Judge me. How could, how could David pray such a prayer? Now, Let's just reiterate again. Did I get it right when I asked you if the judgment was good news? Did you hear a lot of amens? Even those texts like you know, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, for he shall bring every work into judgment whether, with every secret thing, whether it be good, whether it be... Still good news to you? Is it? I still hear a few less amens, but I still hear a, a, a chorus of amens. Now, here's my acid test. Okay, I'm a teacher. I'm not a preacher. And I like to ask questions. You learned that last night. Especially when I don't have to grade them. You grade this one. Please don't raise your hand for this one. But if the judgment is really that good of news for you, if it's really part of the everlasting good news, as Revelation 14 tells us, here's the test where the rubber meets the road. Did anybody this morning pray David's prayer? Anybody wake up and the first thing you did when you opened your eyes, you said, Judge me, Lord. Bring it on. Anyone pray that kind of prayer? I haven't found too many takers when I asked that question. But you told me it was good news. If it's really such good news, why aren't we praying, Lord, bring it on, like David did? How could David pray such a prayer? Did he not understand the seriousness of his sin? You remember David's sins. I mean, not only did he think to break all the Ten Commandments, he did them overtly, including murder and adultery and lying, all the rest. He understood. He was a great sinner. 
Did he not understand the seriousness of the judgment? Oh yes, he understood the awesomeness of the judgment. In Psalm 51, these two ideas are brought together by David as he becomes increasingly aware of his sinfulness when Nathan, the prophet, comes to him after he had gone into Bathsheba and his conscience is pricked and he prays, starting in verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. David understood that he would be judged. He also understood his sins, not only external sins, but he understood that sin was part of his very nature. Notice what he says in the next verse, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And not only was he sinful in acts and sinful in nature, he was sinful in motives. And so he prays in the next verse, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Yes, David understood that there was going to be an awesome judgment, and that there was a lot of great sin in his life. He was a great sinner. But you know what? He understood something else. Not only did he understand there was a great judgment and, a great, and he was a great sinner, but he understood that there was a great Savior. And so in the next verse, he could pray, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. You know what hyssop is, that plant that still grows out of the wall, of the western wall. If you see on the evening news, they pan in close to the the worshippers there at the foot of the western wall, the wailing wall in Jerusalem, you can see those green blotches on that wall. That's hyssop that's still growing out of the wall. And they'd take uh, branches of hyssop and dip it in the blood of the Passover lamb, that first Passover. And hyssop had a property of being able to soak up the liquid. And it soaked up the blood. And then they, would, they sprinkled the blood upon the doorposts and lentils of the house. And when the destroying angel came over at midnight, you remember the story, everyone inside was covered by the blood. And the angel passed over that house. No one was, was destroyed. David was in essence praying, Lord, cover me with the blood of the Lamb, and I will be because David understood that though he was a great sinner, God was a greater Savior and that he could be covered by the blood of the Lamb of God. In fact, David understood that when he was covered by the blood, he was acquitted. He was, in fact, vindicated because when you are covered by the blood and declared by God as not guilty, as acquitted, in the judgment, the tables are turned and no longer are you the defendant being charged. You are the plaintiff calling for vindication against the false charges of Satan. You remember that story in Zechariah chapter 3 where Satan comes as the great accuser and he tells only half the story. He says, 
Look at Joshua, the high priest. He's a great sinner. And that was true. But he forgets to tell the second part that Joshua was covered by the blood of the Lamb that God had given him the right robes of his righteousness. He didn't tell that part. And so the judgment is God's opportunity to reveal to the universe those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb, by the robes of Christ's righteousness. And David could call for vindication in the judgment. That's why some of the modern translations of those four passages in Psalms don't say, judge me, O Lord, you have a modern translation, more than likely it says, vindicate me, O Lord. Because it's the idea of vindication in the judgment. I like what Ellen White writes in volume 2 of Selected Messages, page 32 and 33. We should not be anxious about what God and Christ think of us, but about what God thinks of Christ our substitute. What does God think of Christ our substitute? Is he accepted in God's sight? Yes? And if we are in Christ, then we are accepted in the Beloved. Is that good news? I want to share with you why I find Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement message, good news. The first reason is the one I've just shared because I have a substitute, Jesus Christ, that has died in my place. And my favorite text from the Spirit of Prophecy is Steps to Christ, page 62. You remember that statement. If we give ourselves to Him and accept Him as our Savior, then sinful as our life may have been, for His sake we are accounted righteous. Christ's character stands in place of our character and we are accepted before God just as if we had never sinned. Wow! That is awesome news. But if that's not good enough news, He's not only our substitute, He's our lawyer in court. Our advocate. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 for he ever lives to make intercession for us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. If any man sin, he has an advocate, a lawyer, before the Father. Now, there's, when I grew up, there were some old books that I think contributed toward my fear of the judgment. And I still have some of those old books in my basement because they have sentimental historical value for Adventist history but it's especially the pictures in those books that were so misleading. In fact, I have, I hope this doesn't sound irreverent, Ted, but I have ripped out those pictures and I've burned those pictures. When my kids were growing up, I didn't want them to get the wrong picture of the judgment like I had. Those pictures describe the, the heavenly courtroom scene during the time of the investigative judgment. And as the, as the name of a... Of a person comes up in the judgment by faith he is uh, pictured as, as appearing there in the judgment a righteous a, a sinner saved by grace someone who is covered by the blood of Jesus he's there he's, he's one of God's children and here's the, the father presiding over the trial and there's the angels unfallen universes universe uh, worlds 
as the uh, jury, the witnesses. I accept all of that picture. But there in the center of the courtroom is this sinner that's been saved by grace. And he's standing there all alone. You ever seen a picture like that? What's wrong with that picture? In the heavenly courtroom, we never stand alone. With his arm around us, our lawyer, who is taking our case on and he's never lost a case that has been committed to him. If you go into a law court and you know you've got a lawyer that's never lost a case and it's guaranteed he never loses, would the courtroom be fearful anymore? No, because you know that case is already wrapped up. And Jesus, as our lawyer, stands there pleading our case before the Father. Now that word was a word that triggered another misconception in my young mind all the way into my days as a pastor. Pleading. I pictured it as, as Jesus down on his knees before the Father, you know, saying, Oh God, oh Father, I know that you really don't want to forgive them, but please, for my sake, you know, you see the blood, please forgive them even though you don't really want to. Is that the picture? No. Perish the thought. The Father is the one who so loved that He gave His only begotten Son. Remember John 3.16. The Father was experiencing the same anguish as the Son on the cross as the unity between Father and Son was broken up by our sins. Our sins ripped God from God. The Father and the Son suffered together the time of Golgotha. No, Jesus doesn't have to twist the Father's arm to forgive us. The word plead is a legal term. It's what lawyers still do today when they go into the courtroom. They plead the case. That means they present the evidence of the case. And so our lawyer presents the evidence of his spilled blood that covers his sinful but repentant children. Is that good news? We're not alone in the courtroom. It's a time when we're as close to the Son as we can ever be. He's got His arms around us presenting our case before the universe. But if that's not good enough news for you, He's not only our substitute, He's not only our lawyer that has never lost a case, He is also the star witness in the courtroom. Revelation chapter 3 describes that faithful and true witness. And what is it that he witnesses? Ellen White describes it in Great Controversy as she points back to Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 16. Isaiah 49, 16. Jesus in the courtroom with his arm around us lifts his hands before the universe and he says, I have engraven Dick Davidson and put your name there upon the palms of my hands. He, she, is mine. And as Jesus declares that before the universe, that we're covered by the blood and that we've accepted Jesus as our Savior and that we are in Christ, 
the whole universe shouts with joy. I think you had a sermon last week about the joy in the courtroom on Yom Kippur. There is hallelujahs and hosannas. Do you ever say hosanna? You know, we have it in songs. Man, when Jesus came as king, the whole crowd of Israel was shouting hosanna. But I, I hear hosannas in Pentecostal churches. I rarely hear a hosanna in an Adventist church. We should be filled with hosannas during the time of judgment. What does hosanna mean? It's an Aramaic word. And it simply means save now. Isn't that great? Save now. It's the perfect word that if the heavenly courtroom speaks Aramaic, which I don't know, it would be the word that they would use when Jesus declares, I have declared, I have engraven them upon the palms of my hands. And the whole courtroom shouts out. Could we just pretend we're the courtroom for the minute? I know you're not Pentecostals, but, but we're biblical Christians that are more joyful, even perhaps, than, than Pentecostals. Could we just get a little idea what it might sound like in the heavenly courtroom? How about a, just a, a powerful threefold hosanna? Is that okay, Ted? Do you have permission from the general conference to do this? All right, good. Here we go. Hosanna! 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 That sounded pretty good. Awesome. Wonderful. And that it, with, think of the millions of people there gathered for the, for the judgment scene and what a chorus of hallelujahs and hosannas go forth as God declares His child redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Is that good news? But if that's not good enough news for you, He's not only our substitute who's paid the price, for our sins. He's not only our lawyer that is our best friend that's never lost a case and presents the evidence before the courtroom. He's not only the star witness that witnesses that we are engraved upon the palms of his hands. Guess what? He's also the judge! John 5.22 The Father has committed all judgment into the hands of the Son. Now I know the Father presides in the trial in this grand final courtroom scene. Daniel 7 is clear on that. The Ancient of the Days is sitting. But he, he gives the actual judgment proclamation to the Son. And the Son who is our best friend. The Father is our best friend too. But the Son proclaims this is my child acquitted not guilty, pardoned, eternally mine. What reason for rejoicing? Now some of you may say, hey, that's foul play. How can the same person be all of those things in a trial? That doesn't fit Western trial protocol. They may not fit Western trial protocol, but most of the history of the world in biblical times, this is the way trials took place. The ancient trial system is closer to God's legal system than our Western one. At the city gates in Israel time, the same elders would meet and do all of those functions. They would sometimes pay the price for the guilty person. They would argue the case. They would present the evidence as a witness and then they would be the judges. Altogether, that was not unusual in biblical uh, jurisprudence and neither is it unusual in God's system. 
Now tell me, if you've got all of those things going for you, how can the judgment be bad news? Well, it can be. You can reject the substitute. You can turn away from all of those things that he's offered and given in his son. But unless you turn away, it's good news. We don't need to be afraid of the judgment. I think, uh, I think Ted, that the reason I ultimately I think back why I was so afraid of the judgment boiled down to one statement that a, a Bible teacher taught me in Academy. Christ's Object Lessons, page 155, where Owen White says, we should never say, I am saved. Remember that statement? Maybe some of you read that. And I thought that that mean, meant that I could never have assurance of salvation, that I was accepted in Jesus. If I'd only read two sentences later in the same paragraph, Ellen White clarifies what she means, and she says, we may go to God and know that he accepts us. Ellen White was clear on assurance. She was counteracting the false theology of once saved, always saved. That you can just take Jesus as your Savior and then you do whatever you want, forget about him, and you can never be lost. That's not biblical. But Christian assurance of salvation day by day is the very heart of the gospel. And I'm so sorry that I didn't learn it sooner. I even took a course at the seminary taught by our leading expositor of righteousness by faith. He wrote the Sabbath school lessons a couple of years ago on righteousness by faith. And his was an awesome class. And I learned all the theory. I don't blame him for my problem in that class. But somehow my head was too thick and I couldn't get it through my brain. And so I studied all the details of righteousness by faith. I learned all the Latin terms and the names and the debate between the Protestants and the Catholics back at the time of the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation and the Council of Trent. And I packed into my brain all the details, all the data. It was there. I studied harder for that final exam than I'd ever studied for any final exam in my life. And I got on the results of the final exam. The only time in my life this has been true. I got an A plus on the final exam in righteousness by faith. I had arrived. An A plus in righteousness by faith with one small problem. I had never experienced righteousness by faith. And so it took preaching five or six years as a pastor Lots of sermons about Jesus, but never giving anyone assurance in Jesus before finally one of my pastoral buddies took me aside and started reading these wonderful promises from the Bible. John 6:47. He that believes in me has everlasting life. 1 John 5:13. I write this unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And he would ask me, you read it? Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you have eternal life? I think so. He'd say, you need to read it again. It's not a matter of think so. Read it again. He made me read it, I think, almost a hundred times before I got through this thick skull and I could say, yes, by God's grace, I am accepted in the Beloved. He is mine. Have you accepted Him? Are you accepted in the Beloved? I'd like us to just... Uh, I have about 
six or seven more minutes to preach. There's two more reasons I want to give you why the judgment is good news. But I don't want you to mix up those two with the four that we've just mentioned. So I'd like to just reach out and take that gift again of eternal life that God offers us. Would you mind just bowing your head with me? If this is your prayer, pray along with me. Lord, I'm a great sinner. You know that. But you're a greater Savior. And I thank you for the good news of the judgment that you've paid the price for me. And I'm accepted in Jesus. And I reach out and take that gift just now, Lord, again, this day, and claim your acceptance in the Beloved. And I believe it's true, not because I feel it, but because you've said so. And I trust your word. Thank you for the gift, this unspeakable gift of eternal life through Jesus. Amen. What we just talked about is justification. Just as if I had not sinned. Every day we are saved on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. But you know, there's even better news than that. In the judgment, God doesn't just want to leave us wallowing in our sins. He also wants to clean us up. And I don't know how many of you have tried the the route that I tried for so many years of getting my life together, my act together and cleaning up by working harder, by trying harder. And so if you just concentrate harder and a sin pops up in your life, you hold it down with one foot and then another one pops up, you hold that down with another foot and another one pops up, hold that one down, another one pops up. Soon you don't have enough feet and hands to hold them down and even if you could hold down all the apparent sins you know about those motives inside that you can never change that seem to always be bubbling to the surface where's victory in the Christian life my favorite text right now in the Old Testament is Ezekiel chapter 36 Ezekiel 36 we're not now talking about the way to salvation. We're talking about the fruit of salvation. The root is justification. The fruit is now what God wants us to experience every day as a result of Him having accepted us and as our heart is broken by looking at the cross. Here's what He promises us. This again is in the context, these last chapters of Ezekiel are in the context of the Day of Atonement. Ezekiel says here in verse 25, And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then verse 27 is my very favorite verse. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. That's the verse I've been looking for all my life because I'd been trying to do it myself. And God says, you know, you don't have to take responsibility for this department. Your responsibility is to get the new heart every day. And you can't even do that. And so every morning, just about every morning, as I wake up, I imagine myself lying on an operating table. And I'm far away from Loma Linda. You've got operating tables a lot closer than I do with physicians that you can trust. But I just imagine there being on an operating table and I say to God, God, I've got a stony heart this morning. But I invite you, the great physician, 
to come and do the heart transplant for me today. And give me a heart of flesh. And put in my veins the Holy Spirit, spiritual nourishment going through my veins. And Lord, you promise to cause me to walk in your statutes. And I claim that promise today. And then I get up, and God has done the miracle again for that day. And he gives the power to walk the Christian life. And that doesn't mean I sometimes don't fall. But when I fall, he doesn't cast me aside. He picks me up and helps me to walk and gives me the strength that I need. That's the beauty and the good news of the judgment, period. God, during this time of the judgment, is wanting to fill us with his spirit, wanting to fill, fulfill the gospel promise of the new covenant to write his law in our hearts. Not in order that we can be saved, but because we're already saved. Not as the root of salvation, but as the fruit of salvation. The root comes as we focus upon Jesus who's died for us and we accept his blood and that breaks our hearts and causes us to want to serve him, wants to follow him. Is that good news? The cleansing work is not bad news. It's not a matter of navel-gazing. Let's see, am I good enough to accept, face the judgment today? You missed the whole point there. Our only focus is on Jesus, not on our navels, not on our actions, not on our activities. God's department is to change our lives. Our department is to focus on Jesus and to get the new heart. But if that's not good enough news for you, there's one more. It's the best news of all. It's found here in Ezekiel 36 also. Verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your own, your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And then verse 23, the Revised Standard Version captures the original of the Hebrew very nicely when it says, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am vindicated in you before their eyes. In these last days, as God writes his law upon our hearts, the whole universe will see that God is not a liar when he has asked his people to keep his law. That God has the power to bring to completion the work of righteousness by faith that he has promised in Scripture. And he will be able to reveal to the whole universe the fullness of the power of the gospel through his weak and sinful people. And we will have a small part in vindicating the name, the reputation of God before the whole universe. Because ultimately, the good news is not about us at all. It's the news about God. That He is that kind of wonderful God. A few years ago, Joanna and I were in Israel on Yom Kippur. We went to the synagogue that day. We saw our Hebrew brothers and sisters praying earnestly before God. And I had never expected to learn from my Hebrew brothers and sisters anything about the Day of Atonement. 
You know, we know about 1844 and we know the theology of the judgment. We know Jesus. How can I learn from my Hebrew brothers and sisters? But that day in that synagogue, I saw a people, many of whom do not know the Messiah, but know, but serve God with all their heart, living up to the light that they know. And I saw there the experience of the Day of Atonement that I long for our Adventist people to have. Here in the synagogue were these wonderful prayers of repentance. And they weren't just, Lord, forgive me for this. Forgive me, forgive me. They were, Lord, forgive us. It was corporate kind of prayers. And I, I got to think of what would happen in every Adventist church on, on Sabbath during the antitypical Day of Atonement if, if we found out about someone who had sinned in the congregation instead of saying, Lord, shame on them, we'd say, Lord, we have sinned and include them in our prayers like Daniel did in his great prayer in Daniel 9. And then I saw that toward the end of the, the service, there, were, there was a, a man down here that got up and went over to the other side of the synagogue and a lady over here that went to the other side of the synagogue and pretty soon the whole synagogue was up going to see different people and I couldn't figure out what was going on and finally I looked in their eyes and I saw tears streaming down their cheeks. They were hugging one another as they were making reconciliation for something they had remembered during the year that they had not made right with their brother or their sister. And I got to thinking what would happen in every Adventist congregation if during the Day of Atonement instead of backbiting and fault-finding and all the rest, we would go to brother and sister with hugs of reconciliation. And then we went to the, the Western Wall for sunset. And there at the Western Wall was an old rabbi who held the shofar up. And as the sun was just about to set, I thought of my Hebrew teacher that that week had taught me about the meaning of the shofar. She was a Jew. She wasn't a Christian. But she taught me how the shofar is curved downward just like we are to be bent downward in deepening repentance every day before God. And how the shofar stood for that ram on Mount Moriah that was caught in the thicket by its horns. And then Abraham offered the ram instead of his son Isaac. And the ram died so that Isaac didn't have to die. Here was my Hebrew teacher teaching me the gospel of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. And then she said, the shofar blows every 50 years to call us to the great hope of the Jubilee when the prisoners will be set free. And all of that was going through my mind as the old rabbi was holding the horn, just ready to blow it. And this morning, as I think about how to, to best imprint in your minds the meaning of Day of Atonement so that you'll never forget it. You may forget the words I've said here today, but I, I think maybe the best way that the meaning of Yom Kippur will echo and re-echo through the corridors of your mind until Jesus comes will be for you to hear what I heard at that wall. So it, as our prayer this morning, this will be our closing prayer. Hear the call of the shofar calling you to repentance, to assurance of G in, the, in the Ram, the Lamb of God, and to the advent hope of the soon coming Jubilee. Please respond in your own way to this sound.
see this afternoon.